0: Kia ora whānau, nō mai haere mai. Welcome to the Young Adults Podcast. I'm your host and Young Adults leader, Stephen James Hart, and I'm stoked you've clicked play on this episode. Young Adults is the ministry for the 18 to 25 year olds at Gateway Church in Aotearoa. We meet on Tuesday nights, either in homes for connect groups or at church for our fortnightly gatherings. If you're new to Hamilton, or you want to join our community, we would love to meet you. DM us on Instagram or Facebook, at Young Adults Gateway or visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz forward slash young adults. This year and on this episode, we're focusing on following the way of Jesus. You might be out for a run, walking to work, or driving in the car. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take a moment right now to welcome the leading and the guiding of Holy Spirit in your midst. He's here to teach and guide and speak. And it's His voice I pray that you hear clearest in this time we have together. So, let's get into it. This is Following the Way of Jesus on the Young Adults Podcast. Tonight is um, session four on Following the Way of Jesus. And last gathering we looked at, um, obviously, in Jesus' life, His hidden years. And those seasons of anonymity and what can seem like um, delayed destiny, but how all those things were actually the key ingredients that helped Jesus do all that he did in his earthly ministry. As a reminder, much of um, last week's talk and tonight's talk is based on the book Anonymous by Alicia Britt-Scholay. I thought her name was Cole, then it turned out it was Cholet, and I was right, so that's great. Didn't have to apologize for that. If you haven't read it, it's phenomenal. Um, I think all the copies are sold out at Manor because most of our church has it now, but um, grab it if you can. I think it's probably also on like Kindle or something like that. Fantastic book. So last week, we left Jesus at the, end of the, at the end of the session as he arrives at the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And we left where John is looking out and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is Jesus as he's standing in line with other sinners waiting to be baptized. After his baptism, what might seem like a turn of odd events... The Spirit of God actually leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So Matthew 4, 1 to 11, if you've got your Bibles or you want to find it on your phones, that's where we're going to be reading from tonight. Matthew 4, 1 to 11, it goes like this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered... again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor all this i will give you he said if you will bow down and worship me jesus said to him away from me satan for it is written worship the lord your god and serve him only so jesus fresh out of being baptized comes up out of the waters of the river jordan ending 30 years of hiddenness The sky rips in half, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks in this booming, loud voice, and He speaks identity over His Son. And then the Spirit leads Jesus into the desert. I'm tempted to look at that story and go, surely there's a little bit of a breather there, right? Like some kind of celebration dinner, hashtag, good job, Jesus. You just survived 30 years in the wilderness in the anonymous seasons of your life. Well done. But as it turns out, All that Jesus actually needed was the approval of his Father and his love to sustain him for all that was ahead. And oftentimes, following God's Spirit can actually lead us right into a desert, a place that's physically barren, emotionally lonely, and spiritually troubled. But just because it's lonely and difficult doesn't mean it's not God. Just because it's lonely and difficult doesn't mean that it's not God Remember, though, that this desert wasn't chapter one of Jesus' life. It was actually chapter 30. Jesus had been making unseen, unapplauded decisions for three decades of his life, and it was these practices, these daily rhythms of practicing surrender and intimacy with the Father that actually empowered Jesus to be victorious with everything that he was about to face head on with Satan In the passage that we have, the word tempted is translated from a verb that means to examine or to test, to learn another's true nature or character, and then to try and attempt to catch that person out in a mistake. And this is what the devil sets out to do with Jesus. And anyone who's been alive for more than five minutes can tell you he does the same with us. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. James 1 says something similar. James 1, 2, consider it pure joy. Pure joy, strong My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. What does that mean? Not lacking anything. So right off the bat, James and Peter encourage us to not only persevere and stand strong when trials and temptations come our way, but actually to take it a step further and rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice, because if we share in the sufferings of Jesus, we will share in the reward of his glory and his presence too. In each temptation, Satan uses a bait. He offers something tasty, something attractive, and dangles it in front of Jesus and exploits a natural human longing that Jesus had. By pulling on these innate human desires, the temptation actually becomes about how Jesus can satisfy a justified want or need. In that proposition, Satan makes compelling arguments often grounded in scripture by mixing truth with a fundamental lie. However, where the enemy has a pattern, Jesus has a better one. And he follows with his response to each temptation by anchoring himself. He anchors himself by looking to God and being rooted in the word of God. And he makes a definite choice that renders every invitation of the enemy ineffective. Satan's lures and temptations haven't changed much throughout history, much the same way that we haven't changed a lot either. Sure, in 2022 our temptations and things may look a lot more like phones than they do stones, but at the root they're the same old core human temptations that he loves to play up on. But thankfully Jesus' response and God's word still holds up and it works for us today too. So the first recorded interaction that we have in this passage begins with what can only be described as one of the greatest understatements of the Bible. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Kia Sherlock. It had been 40 days since Jesus' last meal and it's here that the devil approaches Jesus and tries to lure him with a temptation to simply feed his appetite. Side note, how often does that feel the same for us? when we're the most tired, the most vulnerable, have been through a lot already and then the enemy comes in and tries and you feel like you're falling apart and that's when temptation comes in. Off the bat, the devil doesn't play nice and he doesn't play fair. But the devil really doesn't care about what the bait is. He just wants you hooked. His goal is to make something so appealing, so tasty, so satisfying, that you don't notice the razor-sharp, sugar-coated hook behind it. In this case, Jesus was hungry, so it was bread. In our lives, it might be food, money, control, sex, power, influence. Honestly, you can fill in the blank with whatever just jumped into your head right there. Satan is going after that instant gratification value that we as humans know and we love to satisfy. In essence, Satan is saying, and this is my paraphrase, mate, you're hungry but you're also God. Tell these stones to become bread. Feed yourself. Why wait? Why put it off? Do it now. I think it's important too to notice that Satan doesn't try to lure Jesus with a blatant violation of God's commands. He's not telling Jesus to actually escape the desert, go back into town, steal some food from someone else. But eating bread in and of itself, that's not sinful. And here is where Satan's bait can be so deceptive. As is the case with so many of the temptations that we face today, it's not about what Jesus would eat, but about when he would eat. Side note Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Clearly, the devil knew his Bible too, which makes a very compelling case for us to not assume that merely reading the Bible will empower us to discern the voice of God. Yes. Please read the word, memorize scripture, know how to use it against the devil's attacks, but also spend time with the Holy Spirit, cultivating discernment in your heart so that you can take God's word and know how, when, and what parts of it to apply to whatever situation you're facing, not just simply to quote it. Sidebar over. Satan loves to play on the instant gratification lure. Why wait when it's in your power, when it's in my power to not have to? Successful bait, bait that gets us hooked, usually exploits one or all of our core desires. And those are sustenance, shelter, safety, relationship, pleasure, run out of fingers, significance. This is exactly what the devil poses to Jesus. Why continue to be hungry and exhausted when it's within your power and honestly even your identity as God, where you could you could supernaturally do this to be able to feed yourself. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? It's also interesting to note how Satan addresses Jesus too. If you are the son of God. I think it's easy for us to look at that and think that Satan is merely challenging challenging Jesus on his identity by way of saying, like, go on then, prove it, if you're the son of God. But if you look at the Greek text, this question from Satan can also be translated, since you are the son of God. Rather than the devil trying to undermine Jesus' identity, which was never in doubt. They both knew he was the son of God. Satan comes after Jesus outworking his ability to act as God. It's as if the devil is saying, and again Stephen paraphrase, come on, I know you're the son of God, so act like it. Stop sitting around here hungry, have some dignity, and feed yourself. Viewing this temptation by itself It might seem reasonable for Jesus to have satisfied his hunger with bread. But Jesus didn't view his life and these seemingly individual moments as if they existed in isolation. Jesus was always connecting the dots of his life. He knew that for him to be able to endure the cross in three years' time, he had to be able to withstand the desire for comfort, convenience, to satisfy his hunger, to satisfy whatever his body was demanding and wanting now. Because seemingly insignificant choices today dictate our significant choices tomorrow. How many times are we faced with something attractive in front of us? And the thought that flashes through our mind is, just once, just once. In error, what are we doing? We're disconnecting the dots of the big picture, and we separate a moment of pleasure from the bigger thing, the bigger picture that God is out working in our lives. We rationalize the bait in front of us, and we flirt with the lie that it's just one look, it's just one splurge, it's just one white lie. And so what do we do? We splurge, we buy, we satisfy, we open that incognito browser tab, we tell a lie, we undermine someone. And in the moment, what happens? The pleasure of the bait seems to justify. We feel good. We enjoy the temptation. But when it wears off, as it always does, we're left with the pain, the shame, the regret of the aftermath, an aftermath that sharply jolts us back into reality. Jesus saw through all of this. He, he, he saw the hook that was beneath the bait, and he didn't fall for it. He didn't give in to his urges, and in the place of the hook of temptation, Jesus throws out an anchor into something immovable, the word of God. I imagine it went something a little like this. Jesus, hungry as he's ever been, stomach growling, a little little weary, a little shaky perhaps, sees the stones at his feet, the very stones that the enemy has just tried to tempt him with. They were looking like bread. And he takes two steps forward firmly planted right on the very thing that the enemy was trying to tempt him with. And he looks the devil right in the eyes and he says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For us to really understand the gravitas of this situation, it's important for us to understand and imagine how much Jesus' body, his physical body, would have actually been protesting that statement, that decision, I've often incorrectly read these stories and imagine Jesus as this almighty son of God with unrestrained supernatural power. Like, was this even a temptation? He's God, couldn't he supernaturally just not be hungry? Surely these temptations aren't that big of a deal for God. But like we've touched on before, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully man so that he could live as us, but do it without sin. And fully god so that he could die for us and impart the same power the very same power that he used to say no for us to overcome all of our brokenness what a joy what a privilege that we've been grafted into this new way of living too because he overcame all those things because he looked the devil straight in the eye and said no we can too does it make it any easier no but does it make it possible? Sure does. But before we can overcome our temptations, like Jesus did, we actually have to put our desires to the test of ultimate truth. Most of us today in this instant gratification-obsessed culture have been preconditioned to define truth as the product of our emotions and our desires. Do I feel it? Then it must be true. But our feelings are not the way that we should interpret reality. Yes, they are powerful and very indicative, but at the essence, our emotions and feelings are simply reactions to our environment, to our circumstances, to our perceptions, and that's mostly a product of the sum of our life thus far. By that very definition, our feelings are followers, and we place ourselves on a collision course with tragedy when we in turn decide to follow followers ultimate truth, that's truth with a capital T, is our lead and our guide. Jesus models a life that's anchored in truth, and that truth is the word of God. God's truth, God's word, tells it like it is, plain and simple, and it gives us the much-needed boundaries and parameters for our lives. Our lives actually crave boundaries and parameters. John 16 verse 13 says this, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Spirit of God will guide us into all truth. When we're facing temptation, that bait is looking real satisfying. Oftentimes, it might feel accurate to say, God, if I don't satisfy this urge in me right now, I literally will die. Listen, I'm almost 30 and I'm single. I understand what it feels like to have urges where you feel like you're going to die if they are not satisfied. The devil is cruel And he's out there tempting in the streets and tempting in my sheets. I understand temptation. I understand it. I also know how alluring, how exciting, how soul-destroying it can be to give in. I've wrestled with the devil over my sexual desires, my urge to gossip, my love for a little low-key exaggeration which is flat-out lying, my addiction to self-sabotage and self-destruct when something good is happening in my life. Temptation doesn't always look like the obvious thing. So when I say you feel like you want to die, I get it. But equally, when I say you're not a slave to that, and Jesus' blood sets us free, I have seen that true in my life time and time again. The devil doesn't fight fair, though. He loves the extremes of our life, and he comes at us when our defenses are down. Sometimes that's the extremes of pride and feeling like everything's really, really good and I've nothing to worry about. Or it's the low parts where things are really depressed and really, really difficult. In all the extremes, he loves it. There's an open door when we're feeling vulnerable and our defenses are down. But when we choose to put God's truth over our temptations, something actually does die. And that's ourselves. To continue the 30-year-old single metaphor, it's the least sexy thing about the gospel, but it's probably the most vital and most important aspect that we actually need to learn and embrace. That is our daily cross and our daily death. Stay with me, I promise it gets better. Every day, when something comes our way and it looks enticing, and we feel the Spirit of God prompting us to disengage and we obey, and we obey, what do we do? We actually put to death the selfish parts of our humanity that are trying to pull us away from the king and his kingdom. In these moments, it's vitally important to anchor ourselves in the truth of God and choose his character, his word, and his way over our own. Because every decision, every stance that you and I make is either making us more and more like Jesus, turning up the volume of God in our lives, Or it's not. In the battle for our hearts, our wills, and our bodies, there's actually no demilitarized zone. You're either fighting to stay close to the Lord, or you're participating in the enemy's plan to drag you away. It might be subtle, it might seem insignificant, but his plan is to drag you away from holiness, from righteousness, and from the pursuit of purity. In all of this, I love that Jesus doesn't deny the existence of his natural longings and feelings. By the very name of the stone to bread temptation, we know that Jesus was tempted. He was hungry and he longed very justifiably to satisfy that hunger. And it's the same with the two following temptations that the devil comes for him with, applause and authority. Whether the devil tried to lure Jesus with physical urges for food, his heart's urge to be seen on the top of that temple, or his spiritual authority and inheritance of the nations, Jesus stands firm on the word of God and his core identity as a son to enable him to say no. We haven't got time tonight to explore each of these temptations in depth, and I wish we could, but honestly, that's where that book is phenomenal. She goes in depth into all of these. I want to skip ahead, though, to the final temptation, where Satan comes for the Trinity's core plan of redemption for the world. What does it say? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. In this final temptation, we see that Jesus' worship was worth more to Satan than the whole world. Here, Satan, as the prince of this world, as Jesus called him, legally offers Jesus the entire world. It had been given to him and it was his to give. The temptation for Jesus wasn't being given the world. He created it all in the first place. He didn't need it. The mountains, the rivers, the oceans, the animals, no matter how beautiful, weren't what was enticing. What was enticing, however, was us, his children. True love requires free will. And because we'd chosen to walk away in the Garden of Eden and choose sin over him, Restitution, which is being made right with God, required the shedding of blood. Scripture tells us that the wages, the selling price of sin, is death. And our freely given worship, our freely given allegiance to God is irresistible to him. And it's what set this whole cosmic redemption plan in place. This last temptation wasn't about Jesus gaining the world. He was already on an eternal mission to do that. This temptation was Satan offering Jesus the world without pain, without suffering, without having to endure the cross. The radical determination and trust in his father that Jesus showed when he turned down that offer is phenomenal. He legally could have taken Satan up on that offer, all the kingdoms and all the souls, but evil and destruction would have won. You know, every day in billions of unique and seemingly harmless but no less costly ways, Satan offers us the same deal, to trade the eternal and the unseen for the visible, for the here and now. He tempts us with stages and platforms, promising influence, money, power. He coerces us with our sexuality, playing on our insatiable hunger for lust and for greed. Or maybe he lulls us into a false sense of security and just enough good things in our life that we we end up forgetting that we need God. Little by little, he chips away at our affections, our desires, and our urges until, whether intentionally or subconsciously, we're his. But God, he so loved the world that he sent Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb, to take our place. To face temptation head on, to face the enemy head on, to die death head on, the death that we deserved, so that the opportunity to be legally bought back and adopted back into his family was also on the table. Of course, there's always the opportunity for us to side with the enemy, side with our own selfish, fleshly desires. And up until Jesus was on the cross, that was. That was what was on the table. But praise God, he went to the cross because now also on the table is restitution, is us being made right with him. And that is an incredible king, incredible savior that comes to offer that and go through all of that so that you and I can daily make a choice. If we let him. If we truly submit ourselves to his leading and his guiding and we allow him to give us the desires of our hearts, little by little, he chips away at our affections. He chips away at our desires until we're made more in his image. But it's not accidental. It's not passive. We don't stumble into righteousness and sanctification. It is a daily choice and a daily cross, but a daily privilege it's really important too as we close to note that temptation is not sin temptation is not sin jesus was tempted and he remained sinless urges and desires aren't sin and it's so important that we remember that and we get a revelation of that because freedom from sin isn't about not finding sin appealing true freedom is experiencing god's love acceptance and his kingdom reality in such a powerful way that when we're tempted, when we're tempted, we can say no because we're already operating from acceptance, from love, not looking for things to try and fill that, to try and find that. Because scripture actually promises ups and downs, promises us temptations and trials. It promises us that we're human, the world is broken, and we are going to have to navigate that. But... God. Because Jesus overcame temptation, because he endured the cross, all authority and power are his. However, the power to execute and extend that kingdom and that kingdom's rule and reign in our hearts and in our minds, hearts and our minds, (laughs) is in our hands. It's up to us. Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee. It's not about not being tempted. That's human. It's about not taking the bait that's jesus self-control another unsexy word is a fruit of the spirit and it's cultivated and it's learned just like every other fruit good news though the same power that raised christ from the dead lives in you and lives in me but we have to actually draw on that power daily in order for us to see it at work in our lives Temptation will come. Trials will come. You will have bad days, and you will have tough seasons. But it's what you turn to and who you call on that determines whether temptation and pain will overcome you or you will overcome it. And it's important for us to be prepared before temptation comes your way. Believe me, all hands and feet in the air, I know that in the moment, it's usually too late to run around and start thinking about what to do and what scripture to quote and how are we going to back this off. It's a battlefield and we have to take it seriously and be prepared. Yes, scripture tells us to resist the devil and he will flee. Correct. But scripture equally says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace and call on the Lord from a pure heart. We have a vital and important part to play in this whole arena of temptation and sin. For example, and this is just an example, do with it what you will. Don't sit around watching sexual Netflix shows or listening to explicit music and then wonder why you're horny as heck later that night, curled up in bed crying desperately, quoting Psalm 91 over yourself. God is faithful and kind, 100%. And when we call on him, he will answer us, full stop. That was said for comedic effect, but honestly full stop. He will answer when we call on him. But the idea that we can just shrug off the responsibility of guarding our hearts, of stewarding our minds and our bodies well, and simply expect that he's just going to ride in on a white horse no matter what we've been up to and save us, is unwise, to put it kindly, and it's really arrogant, to put it harshly. So, where does that leave us? A little bit overwhelmed? Feeling a little bit hopeless, perhaps? Not if we remind ourselves that Jesus came and died to give us the power to overcome the tempter and his schemes by applying the blood and calling on his name. So tonight, I've made some cards, and maybe you guys actually could just hand those out if you could. And it's four simple steps. Four simple steps, because I didn't have this when I was at my lowest point and really could have had some, needed some help in my temptations. So hopefully these cards can be something that you can take and keep it in your Bible. Keep it next to your bed. Keep it wherever that will be helpful for you in low temptation moments. Four points, simply. First one, stop. Analyze where you're at. What action do you need to take in this temptation? Do you need to relocate? Sometimes temptation is actually about the physical proximity of where you are. Sometimes you need to actually just get up and leave your situation. Be aware of your surroundings and why you're feeling tempted. Number two, declare the truth of God's word over your situation. Resist the enemy with the word of God and stand your ground. The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. It's actually the only thing in the armor of God that you use offensively. You actually have to use it to see results. So use this little card, use it as a reminder to search the scriptures and find some passages that you can use, that the Holy Spirit wants to give you individually, That are specific for your situation and will help you out. Three, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the deeper needs, the deeper things that are at play in your heart. Identify, be vulnerable and be, be honest with yourself and with the Lord. Identify the false comforts, the things that the enemy is trying to lure you with. Self-awareness and spiritual insight is a must in all of this. Cultivate that life with the Holy Spirit and learn to recognize and discern what he's saying moment by moment because he is speaking in every situation moment by moment. I also put all hands and feet in the air to say that I know what that's like. And he does speak and he's got insight and he's got the get out of jail free card for you every time. And then finally, four, focus your heart, your mind, and your body on Jesus through worship. Refocus your attention upon him. Realign your mind with his. Thanks for joining us for this episode. I pray it's been a blessing to you and an encouragement on your journey with Jesus. Join us on Tuesday nights in Hamilton. We look forward to welcoming you to a gathering or a connect group. Praying grace, favor, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon you as you walk with Jesus and take part in this call, his holy invitation to imitation.